0: Welcome to Speaking Out. We're
1: mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration, I just and energy. To talk a little bit about Indigenous uh, constitutional recognition. Those
2: With Larissa Behrendt, it's a fresh view coming up. on ABC Radio.
3: There
0: is something in the air.
2: Enthusiastic, it was positive. He clearly has a lot of personal conviction around this.
0: I expected something to be as grand as he tried to make it out to be.
2: Well, I started blubbering like a child.
3: I'm like, oh my God, is this the new Paul Keating? Is this the new Lindyari? Like, this is a moment in time.
0: It's important for our our community. It's important for mob.
3: I kind of got up and left, so yeah, obviously, yeah, because there was nothing, you know, there's no promises. Why is it taking so long for, for the government to actually give us a date to do it? This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Barrent. The Albanese Government has just marked its first 100 days with the referendum on an Indigenous voice to Parliament, the issue of jobs and rebuilding relationships in the Pacific as key priorities. Then there are the revelations of Scott Morrison's many ministries and a rebuild under Peter Dutton. There seemed to be so much on that we thought we would dive into these many issues with two of our best First Nations journalists. Joining me to discuss these issues are John Paul Janke, co-host of The Point on NITV and Indigenous Affairs Editor at Guardian Australia, Lorena Allen. One of the first major announcements from the new government was the referendum on a voice to parliament. Lorena, you were at Gama. What was your reaction?
1: Well, I was quite surprised at how um, how much detail the Prime Minister was providing in that speech that he gave to the Gama festival. Um, so he put forward a question and three proposed sentences that he thought could be added into the constitution and then said, we want this to be the starting point for discussion. Um, Since then, there's been a lot of opinionating and not a lot more detail that has come forward from the government. I think it was a really strong start, uh, and we are hoping to see a bit more of the detail and a bit more clarity around the next steps very soon.
3: JP, are you surprised at how quickly this issue has progressed and that Albanese has backed it so heavily?
0: Not really. I think because he took the Uluru Statement to the election and said if we win government, we will implement the statement in full, it kind of gives him the momentum to take it forward. I was at the Gama Festival as well and I think the the momentum when the Prime Minister made his uh, keynote address and, and actually put forward a series of documents and question. I think there was there was such a, a movement of momentum and motivation of people to say, let's just get this done. And I agree. Look, I think that if we're going to have a referendum within a year or maybe a bit longer, we need to start really pushing to get uh, the details for people to actually um, start moving forward. But I think, for me, I think he went to the election with the Uluru Statement saying, we'll put this in place fully the electorate gave him that mandate and I think he has every right to push that forward as quickly as he can.
3: Lorena, you recently wrote an article about how the voice might work and what people are saying about it. What were some of the key things that were, um, that were takeaways from that?
1: Well, I think um, Albanese said on a few occasions now that he doesn't want to be overly prescriptive about this. He wants people to have this conversation uh, as Australians, he doesn't want it to be driven by the government, which is a perfectly sensible approach. Um, I think, to a certain extent, the opposition and the critics of the voice process are the ones who want to see detail, when, of course, there is plenty of detail already out there. So this is the Calmer, Tom Calmer and Marcy Langton report that he, that Albo's referred to and Marcia has referred to that has a lot of detail in it. They spent, you know, two and a half years chairing a voice group that really thrashed out all of these details, like what would a national voice uh, look like, how many people would sit on it, how would local and regional voices feed into it, how would disputes be resolved within the voice and then with government. So they've they've spent a great deal of time and and effort on, you know, working those sorts of crucial details out. The other detail exists in the Joint uh, Parliamentary Committee uh, chaired by Julian Lisa, who's the opposition spokesman on Indigenous Affairs, and Labor Senator Pat Dobson, who also, you know, spent a lot of time and energy looking at what a voice might do and how it might um, operate. So, in a sense, you know, Albo's saying, there's, there's detail out there, you need to go and find it. So, what I tried to do was explain to people what information is already out there. That's not to say that this is... What the government 's preference is, and this and so we still need to see some guidance around that, or at least some kind of um, public campaign, an information campaign explaining to people um, what the referendum's all about and how they can get involved
3: j p recently. Albanese went up to the Torres Strait and the Prime Minister, I guess, was presented with a strong view from the Torres Strait Islander community there that they perhaps might want separate recognition as part of this process. What were your observations about that and does greater consultation need to occur?
0: Yeah, firstly, I think greater consultation needs to occur um, with Indigenous communities to get them on, on board or to hear their concerns about maybe the lack of detail and I and I agree there with Lorena is that the detail is there people need to go and find it but to an electorate you don't I don't think we want them to be able to search it that needs to be at the forefront no. of their fingertips and a campaign no. needs to be about educating them around that detail. the Torres Strait have always wanted uh, some sort of autonomy and, and independence from both state and federal governments. Of course, under uh, the Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander Commission, ATSIC, in the 90s, uh, the Torres Strait Islanders had their own uh, advisory body within ATSIC. They still had a commissioner on the ATSIC Board of Commissioners, but they also had an advisory body uh, called uh, the, the Torres Strait Advisory Board, which solely dealt with issues for Torres Strait Islanders on the mainland. And, it, and in addition to that, they had the TSRA, the Torres Strait Regional Authority, which dealt with issues solely relating to Torres Strait Islanders living in the Torres Strait. So they've always had that kind of autonomy. And I think this is a statement saying we want to be separate from an Aboriginal body because we have particular and unique needs in the Torres Strait.
3: I was going to ask you, knowing your experience with ATSIC and your deep understanding of it, if you thought that there were particular things about the ATSIC model that might inform how a national body should work?
0: Well, I think importantly, if you look at the recommendations from Marcia Langton and Tom Kelmer, it's split up into 35 zones. Of course, ATSIC uh, had 35 regional council zones across Australia, so it had a really strong... Uh, consultative base and representative base through those 35 regional councils. ATSIC was, ATSIC was a unique model. It had an administrative arm um, and also a service delivery arm. This new uh, representative or advisory body does not have that service delivery arm. So it's purely an advisory body. I think the, the takeaway from that is that it can solely focus on advising the government on specific issues relating to the region's through a strong representative body. My big takeaway, having worked in ATSIC and having seen the abolition of ATSIC, that was recommended by both sides of politics. It was the Labor Party that said, should it win power, it would abolish ATSIC, which forced John Howard to do the same. I've seen the abolition of the NAC and DAA. Mm -hmm. We need to have a body that cannot be abolished by either government at the whim of the electorate or to try and win power. And I think that, to me, that's the biggest takeaway or the need for an advisory body at a national level.
3: What are your thoughts on that, Lorena? You've also obviously not just been um, a keen observer through the ATSIC era, but like JP have remained active in reporting on national issues through, as JP points out, several iterations of national bodies. And I just wonder what your thoughts are in terms of what are the deep lessons we should learn from that going forward.
1: Yeah, I agree with what JP just said. I mean, ATSIC was abolished by John Howard. John Howard abolished ATSIC because he could Um, And that's one of the the big differences with the conversations we're having today is that enshrining a voice in the Constitution would mean that no government could get rid of it. But certainly the the sentences that Albo wants to add into the Constitution would give Parliament the right to change and reconstitute a voice. So in a way, the, the one thing that it cannot do is abolish it, but it could change it in any number of ways. And so I think it's the reason why it's important for Aboriginal people to still be uh, active in politics and, and in you know, representative government as well as active on a voice. So, I mean, I think there's a whole generation of people who don't know what it's like to have people speak on their behalf at that level. I mean, we, we're all old enough to remember having local and regional ATSIC councils and what a, what a, um, for, for all its flaws, I think was a fantastic way to surface new leadership and to give people the opportunity to speak for their community. And, and it really brought it to us a great generation of leaders that, um, are now, you know, quite old and we, and have said, you know, that we're ready to pass the mantle. And, and so it's really important for us to be able to find some way of, um, of kind of, you know, allowing people to speak and to be recognised as authorities and experts on what their own communities need. Because for, for what, how long has it been now? Decades we haven't had that ability. And we know very well that our mob know what the problems are and know how to fix them. And if, if this is an opportunity for, for us to be heard, just on that most basic level, then you know um, it, it's so important that we, we plough ahead with this.
0: Lorena, I think you're right there. I think there's a there's an opportunity for us to take some of the real uh, amazing benefits that ATSIC brought to a decade of Indigenous leaders and bringing them onto the national agenda. But I also think that both, if we have an advisory body that's in the Constitution, it shouldn't stop Aboriginal leaders and communities wanting to uh, have representatives in the normal channels, whether it be the federal or state parliament, whether it be on local councils, that should not happen. That should not happen. There should be, both things should happen at once. And I think there's a real, uh, there's a real awakening of people through the normal uh, electoral system in gaining representation, but also this advisory body could be a channel to filter both. And I think for me, that's one of the really strong elements. If You look at a lot of the leaders now, they came through the ATSIG model, the regional mm-hmm. council structure, the administrator arm, and they are leaders at a national level. And I think that's something that really benefits the nation.
3: A successful referendum campaign uh, will be necessary if the voice to parliament is going to succeed. JP, what did you make of the press conference with NBA legend Shaquille O'Neal? PR coup or disaster? And is this indicative of the challenges of a
0: yes campaign? It was interesting. I'm going to say it was interesting. (laughs) To me, it probably just could have been a photo. Um, The press conference just looked out of place and in some way gave the critics of the whole process ammunition to say the whole process is just Hollywood being staged. But having said that, it brought um, the issue to national and international attention. And I have no doubt that getting high-profiled figures involved in the referendum enables it to get into the corners of Australia that it is needed. And, I'm, you know, importantly, I think that someone wrote that this guy is an international uh, identity. He enabled he enabled both the Prime Minister and Linda Burnie to be on the front page of most nice papers and news reports around the world. So I think in some in the modern age of maybe publicity is good publicity, it kind of worked.
3: What were your thoughts, Lorena?
1: I thought it was pretty bizarre, to be honest. He's a, huge, he's a huge icon. He's a superstar. And the photo opportunity was obviously too good to miss because, you know, Linda's quite petite and Jack is enormous. So the photo itself... She looked itself, like a little doll next to him. <laughs> so, so, so little. Tiny to to him. Um, but, you know, I think that the criticism of it is a little bit... Is justified, you know. People are saying, "Well, why are you ta- Why have you got Shaquille O'Neal out there talking about the voice? Come and talk to us about it." I think there's there's a legitimate criticism there, um, but I think that what what they were trying to say was Shaq and other. We've been talking to the NRL, we're talking to the AFL, we're talking as broadly as we can to get people on board for a kind of a, a campaign to support the voice. Um, and it, I got the impression that, that that's in the planning so that at some point, very soon, I hope, there'll be a kind of campaign that people can get behind that will, as JP said, give them some information that they can then have a public conversation about and engage with their neighbours about and whatnot. At the moment, it's all a bit vague. And, you know, I think that maybe bringing Shaq in, and I know that he wanted he hit with his idea, might have been a bit premature.
3: As mentioned, Labor recently marked its first 100 days in office. JP, how would you rate those first 100 days on your report card?
0: Oh, look, for me, I think I'm rating them high because I think there's been a change in the tone of the political environment in Australia. And I think that the 100 days are more about 100 days away from the previous government on the national level. But I, I think that, you know, we've, we've really got to start seeing some of the, the implementation of the policies that the government, the now government, took to the election. You know, there's been, there's they took to the government aged care reforms and anti-corruption commission, childcare, et cetera, reshaping our electricity grid with renewable energy. So I think we, we want to start seeing those policies and processes put into place. I think importantly, he's changed the tone or this government has changed the tone, not only in our nation, but across the Pacific and with foreign policy achievements that really the previous government um, had taken to a new level maybe of discourse. So I think for me, the the main benefit of the, the main advantage of the first 100 days is that it's changed the tone of politics in this country.
3: Lorena, what would your report card read on this uh, Albanese government in its first 100 days?
1: Um, I'd, give them, I'd give them a pretty high rating because, for the same reasons. Um, they really have got a different approach. Their ministers are much more uh, transparent and available. They, you know, even the way Albo runs his press conferences is much less combative and more... Um, I think mean, he's fairer in a sense. Like he, he doesn't allow journals to shout over each other. It's kind of, it's a bit more. Um, <laughs> a, a friend said to me, "It's like the the grown ups are in charge, and there there is that kind <laughs> of feeling." You know, we do. And, and if you're you only going to look at the, I mean, all that the, the scandalous uh, information that's come to light about Scott Morrison swearing himself into five different ministries, and for that to be all unfolding while. We've got this new government offers a really interesting yardstick for where we were, you know, a hundred days ago compared to where we are now. And it just, it, it astonishes me how quickly a country can change when a leadership changes.
3: Well, just picking up on something you've said there, former High Court Judge Virginia Bell has been asked to look into Scott Morrison's secret appointments, self-appointments to multiple ministries. Um, what was your re- reaction to the revelation that uh, he'd undertaken this self-appointment process, Lorena? It was astonishing to me,
1: really. I mean, uh, 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 the Karen Middleton wrote an excellent piece in the Saturday paper last weekend where she, she goes through chapter and verse all the reasons why we shouldn't be surprised that he was capable of this. Um, and it was quite a sobering read. And it really does, to me, it's an indictment on the media, not pushing harder against, uh, you know, people were saying things like, oh, he's a fantastic campaigner, you know, he's, he's, he's you, know, um, you know, finding things to praise about his government, even in the face of some really questionable behaviour. Um, so... It was astonishing to read these revelations and they kind of came out over a series of, uh, a couple of days in a row. It wasn't all in one hit. Where it sort of, it got worse <laughs> a few days, the things that were being reported. So I'm very glad that there's a, a an inquiry into how this could have happened. I mean, in a way saying that the Solicitor General's advice that it wasn't illegal is really not the point. The point was that there are, Conventions, parliamentary conventions that the previous government may have just flouted completely, and we need to make sure that those things can't happen again.
3: What were your takeaways, JP? And in light of that, Solicitor General's um, finding that it wasn't illegal, uh, is it fair to say that this is actually a witch hunt, or was this really a threat to democracy?
0: Well, look, I, I think. In the, in the lead up to the election and under the previous government, there was lots of terms thrown around. There was the pub test. It doesn't pass the pub test. This just doesn't pass the pub test. And I think most Australians were a bit gobsmacked to learn that it was not one, two or three, there was probably five ministries uh, over an extended period. Um, and I think they are just gobsmacked that the Prime Minister was able to do that but not feel as though he would inform the electorate of the need to do it and why he needed, he actually felt like he needed to do it. I think that if he had, at the time, made some announcements that he needed to do it, um, then the electorate might be less forgiving. But I think, you know, for me, the inquiry is the inquiry. But it's now for me, it's a bigger test of Peter Dutton's leadership in terms of saying, well, you know, it's a hundred days into the Albanese government, and we're still talking about the former Prime Minister, and in fact, this inquiry will extend that for a couple of more weeks or months. We'll still be talking about the former Prime Minister. He'll be have front pages devoted devoted to him. He'll have airtime on AM and FM radio and on television. No one is talking about Peter Dutton or his policies in opposition. They're talking about the former Prime Minister. That is a big challenge for Peter Dutton to get some clear airspace, but I think while Scott Morrison's in the Parliament, this is going to continue. So for me, it's it's actually a great test of Peter Dutton's leadership to say that this this might not have been a, a good thing for the previous government to do. It also opens up the question of how much did the former government know, of mm-hmm. the ministers and the members of Parliament know that this had happened, um, and I'm sure this inquiry or this this inquiry will will find that out. I was
3: just about, my next question to you, JP, was how you think Peter Dutton's been going. So like a very good journalist, you've anticipated the question <laughs> before I even asked it. Look, I, I,
0: yeah, look, I, I think it's, it's it's a challenge for him to get clean air. Obviously, as we said, 100 days in, we're going to be 150 days in maybe by the time this inquiry delivers its findings and he is still under under Scott Morrison's shadow. I think the other challenge for Peter Dutton, and this ties back to the referendum, is Indigenous affairs seems to be a big issue for him at the moment. The the opposition spokesperson is obviously Julian Lisa. He is getting little airtime given that the majority of mainstream media are going to Jacinta Price, the Indigenous senator for the Northern Territory, for their comment. And I think there's going to be a, there's, there's going to be a rub there between maybe Julian Lisa and Jacinta Price on Indigenous affairs. And it's going to be interesting to see which way Peter Dutton aligns himself to go with a, an opposition spokesperson that is the opposition spokesperson or go with an Indigenous senator in the Northern Territory whose views might not always be that of the party, of the middle of the party. Speaking out with Larissa Barron. The knowledge, the culture, the arts, the language,
3: the law and customs of Indigenous people. On ABC Radio. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Barron and if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well. Well, it's been a busy few weeks in Indigenous affairs and Australian politics more broadly. There seems to be so much on that we thought we would dive into these many issues with two of our best First Nations journalists, and my guests this week are Lorena Allen and John Paul Janke. We'll continue the conversation shortly, but right now, some music from Troy (laughs) Cassadaly.
4: I came down from the country On a long and lonesome road I was running from some trouble Over horses they say I stole Never find a shot in anger There is no blood on my hands I got a long man 20 miles behind me Says I am a wanted man I'm gonna ride on up the river Till my trail is washed away And if it finds me tomorrow Well that won't slow me down today he is there on the ridge behind me but I know this hidden land I have dreams that remind me I'll always be a wanted man From the wild New England ranges That I learned when I was young When we were running stolen horses for my older brother William To the shootout in Urala Back in 1863 My Mary and the others Every mile he shadowed me Up ahead Stones in the river. Sing her name, and when I can, I sing it back in it a whisper. Cause I. I got a whiskey in a bar road for a bread and another strung behind me to keep me twenty miles ahead but I'm tired, I'm tired. The, sun the sun is going. going from this wide Kentucky plain, and I ride That girl again
3: That's Troy Cassadaly with Wanted Man. You're listening to Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt and my guests this week are Lorena Allum and John Paul Janke. Speaking of spaces to watch, News Corp co-chair Lachlan Murdoch has commenced legal action against independent news site Crikey over an article from political editor Bernard Keane. JP, what did you make from this move by Lachlan Murdoch?
0: Really interesting, really interesting. In some way, I think Crikey's been a thorn in the Murdoch side over a number of years. I think this is the fourth time in five years that uh, Lachlan Murdoch has threatened to sue Crikey. Um, and, in fact, in some ways they were um, they were hoping that uh, the Murdochs would take legal action. It's quite interesting. I think we've seen some defamation cases over the last couple of years which have been brought on by individuals which, in turn, have then exposed uh, maybe elements of their life or elements of their business which they never thought would be exposed. So this may have the opportunity to do the same in terms of the Murdoch Empire and their coverage of the US elections and especially uh, in the lead up to January 6th that they might not want to uh, be uh, under the microscope. So it's a very interesting, very interesting decision um, given that Australia is the only place where they've taken on this defamation case.
3: Lorena, what's your take? Is this a case of dish, can dish it out but can't take it? And what, how do you think this might all play out?
1: Uh, well, it is that, but that's not... That's a, I think what else, what's really going to be interesting is this test of the new serious harm defence, in, uh, in uh, the serious harm test in, in our Australia's defamation laws. It will be the first time that, that someone will be able to, to test that. And Crikey really does want to bring that on. To have this kind of have, have this conversation about how weak our defamation laws are, um, it's a huge risk for them to to do this because they're not worth a great deal. It's less than twenty million, I think. So taking on the Goliath of News Corp is, um, you know, some say gutsy, some say it's about it's publicity seeking. I mean, they took out ads in the New York Times and the Washington Post, I think. Um, you know, you know, dairy. <laughs> Murdoch to sue them, which you know is pretty brave stuff. Um, but I and I think they'll they'll have their work cut out for them because, as I said, the defamation laws in Australia are very uh, applicant friendly, um, and the media outlets in Australia don't have the same defences under the under the, the the law that the Americans have, like in the First Amendment, like right, free speech. There's no public figure defence, so you know. Um, I think it'll be a really interesting case, um, and it does show that that Murdoch might have a you know bit of a glass jaw, but he's also got a huge, you know, huge pockets. So, you know, it, he's he's not entered this not intending to win. So it'll be it'll be a pretty ruthless battle. As we said, watch this space.
3: President Trump has recently become the first president. I mean, he's been a first at many things, but he's also the first president now to have been subjected to an FBI search. Uh, JP, what have been your observations on the general state of US politics?
0: (laughs) It's a car crash, which I can't stop watching. Um, And I think media coverage is one thing, but social media coverage it just keeps me up at night watching the various the various sides in this whole uh, post uh, Trump losing the election. Um, look, I, I think the the FBI search and the seizure of classified documents is one thing, but for me, it's it's actually how it's played out uh, by both sides. You know, when you have the Trump allies saying that the FBI. Planted evidence, and don't trust the FBI, and don't trust the legislative structures or the security structures that we've trusted for generations, um, because it's solely a campaign to um, criminalise Donald Trump, so he can't run again. in twenty twenty four, I think that it really shakes at the foundations of democracy in the US. But it is interesting of how many people actually believe that um, and support that. You know the the last election still tens of millions voted for Donald Trump. Um, so, you know, he's got a quite a big support base. And I just find it interesting that people uh, believe everything that comes out of the Trump family or the Trump administration or the former Trump administration.
3: Lorena, what's your take on this? Do you think that American democracy is fragile and can it come back from what JP observes as a really divisive environment where actually truth matters very little, the side of politics and the, the story you want to believe matters more?
1: Yeah, I think it's it's very. I mean, the the situation we're in here, investigating Morrison signing himself in and flouting convention, is being writ large in the states. It's Trump Trump flouted convention all the time, and I think it shocked people that he was prepared to you know break gentlemen's agreements and 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 go as far as he possibly could to to stay in power. Um, again, it's the you know democracy is only as good as the people who defend its principles and, and if you're in there and you don't give a rat's about the principles it's, it's it's clear that you can you can go far you know he he almost there was almost an instant well there was an insurrection but you know the uh, americans i think are still coming to terms with how close they came to losing their democratic principles um i think america's really struggling with those and i don't think trump is a is a is in uh, his, his um, ancient history by any stretch. The, the Republicans seem to want to keep, they, they seem to find he, he's a real lightning rod for people. As JP said, there's like 70 million people voted for him at the last election. That said, you know, I, I'm amazed at the, the problems he's facing on the legal front, not just the FBI raiding his home, but, you know, he's facing some really serious and potentially criminal charges. So I can't think of another president who has brought the office into such ill repute uh, other than Nixon. So it's just this, as, as JP said, this slow-moving car crash um, and doesn't bring us any joy to watch it, but it sure is fascinating. because there
3: there are those... Personal failings and the legal woes facing Donald Trump, but at the same time, we're seeing the impact that he's made on institutions. Of course, most recently, the overturning of Roe versus Wade because of the makeup of the Supreme Court as a result of his appointments. Lorena, what's your prediction in terms of whether those sorts of uh, attacks or huge shifts in the uh, social fabric within America, how are they going to um, impact how? how people are going to vote in the next couple of elections?
1: I think the makeup of the Supreme Court's a big worry for progressive America because it's the, the ro- overturning Roe v. Wade is just the start, there's the tip of an iceberg. And I think that things will only get more um, complicated for progressive Americans, for people who, who believe in the right to vote. Uh, and, and in fact, you know, the suppression of voter rights in the US is continuing apace. There's some really scary legislative changes that are coming in uh, across various states in the US that, that um, are sending America back to a very dark part of its history, I think. Um, we're sort of watching that unfold. Um with real trepidation because it looks like the American empire is, is on the decline, really. JP, we
3: mentioned earlier the um, the litigation that Lachlan Murdoch has started suing Crikey. Biden, of course, has said that um, Murdoch is the, the biggest threat to American democracy. And I guess what he's referring to is the important role that the media plays. From your perspective, what is the role of the media in democracy and what should it be playing when democracy is under threat like it is in the United States?
0: Well, I know it's a catch cry, but the, the media should be seeking the truth. Uh, and, you know, uh, the US experience and the experience that's happening in Australia, which will happen under the referendum, is the role that social media plays in uh, delivering uh, truth or untruths to people's hands on, on devices and tablets and phones, et cetera. And I think that Australia seems, seems to me to be a bit more educated in uh, deciphering that truth than maybe uh, the US is. And I think, you know, seeing what plays out on social media in terms of Donald Trump, it is it borders on conspiracy theory, you know, and that people accept that and to accept that they change and they go against, they change their beliefs, they go against, you know, structures and institutions that have been the backbone of that country for so long but they're willing to do that because they're reading it online or they're seeing it on paid uh, television services and they're being bombarded with it. So it's a bit like, um, you know, it's a bit like an oyster, a bit of sand gets in and eventually, uh, you know, (laughs) it it grates away at you for a long time and I think that the search for the truth I think still needs to happen for a voter and I think media plays such a strong part in that but we as consumers of media need to know maybe when that media is not telling us the whole story and why they're not telling us the whole story.
3: Just picking up on that, Lorena, you're um, the editor for Indigenous Affairs at a mainstream newspaper, The Guardian. Um, what is the role, and how important it is it to have Indigenous leadership in mainstream
1: media? Uh, well, it's about, as JP said, it's about facts. Um, I think that's the most important role that we can play is to tell the truth, to to uh, you know assemble the facts, and where they don't where they aren 't provided by governments hold them to account for those things and to, to demand that information whether it 's things like whether it 's information about deaths in custody or whether it's information about um, the work for the dole scheme i mean we're, we're about to have a royal commission into the appalling situation with robo debt I kind of think we need a royal commission into work for the dole and the, the various rorts that were um, that were uncovered during you no know, previous Administrations of the Indigenous Advancement Strategy funds. So it is our it is our role to hold governments to account, and where we where we work in the mainstream to use the that capacity and those resources to, to to do that. And to but I just think it's really important that to to understand that we are all working on the same fire front, if you like, just in different places. I really think that there's a role for all of us, whether we work in the mainstream or whether we work in community radio. Or any at any point in between, TV, uh, uh, radio, online, wherever we all have, we're all committed to the same principles, which is the advancement of Indigenous peoples' rights and the privileging of our voices to tell our stories. So it doesn't, in a way, it doesn't matter where we are because we all we're all fight we're all fighting towards that one goal.
3: It's probably a good point to bring JP on to give your perspective, JP, on the role of uh, Indigenous news services like NITV. Um, from your perspective, why are they so important?
0: Yeah, look, if we if we agree that the role of media, mainstream media, of all media is to challenge and change, there's no greater example of that in Indigenous affairs. You know, I think that if you look at the 10 years that NITV has been free-to-air, and the content that that's brought to the national conversation, um, ABC through Indigenous. You know, I I grew up in an era where you could count the number of Indigenous journalists on your hands. Now we have journalists uh, in, you know, major print newspapers, online, television, radio. We have First Nations media. Those Indigenous perspectives are being brought to the national conversation. So I think it's very important as we move towards this referendum that people get Indigenous voices through Indigenous journalists. Um, And I think that that is important. I came from an era where probably most people learnt about Indigenous issues through the 6 o'clock news. They only saw Indigenous people when there was a protest or uh, something which was through the criminal justice system. It shaped their views on Aboriginal people for generations. And I think we're in such a uh, period now where First Nations voices are bringing those conversations to the national conversation and that is at a time where it's more important than ever
3: well, we've covered a lot of serious, um, sometimes depressing subjects in our conversation, and it reminds me of the need to find a bit of a happy place. And for me, I've become obsessed recently with the band King Stingray. This wonderful group <laughs> from <laughs> northeast Arnhem Land yes, just fills yes. me with joy. And I just love their self-described Yolnu surf sound. So I thought it might be great to get your suggestions on what music you play when you want to feel happy, Lorena.
1: Oh, they're good, aren't they? I love them. They're so good. They're just so <laughs> joyful. Um, you know what? I've been giving. I've been given a lot of uh, listening time to is Beyonce's new album Renaissance. Right. Oh my god, I love it so much. There's, the Break My Soul, the single off it, is just classic nineties house music, and it just takes me back, <laughs> back to the day. You know, back to that era. But it's really joyful. It's great fun dance music. So that's been bringing me a lot of happiness lately.
3: What about you, JP?
0: Oh, I love King Stingray. I got the opportunity to see them at the National Indigenous Music Awards in Darwin. They are going to be the next big thing in 2023. But for me, fan of the 80s, so I always (laughs) go to 80s music. You know what? In the lead up to the election, I I got annoyed with hearing April Sun in Cuba. It's one of my favourite dragon songs. So I think post-election I'm going to take it back. I'm going to take it back and enjoy listening to that.
3: I love it. It is, it is a song that does make you feel pretty happy, so I'm glad you are reclaiming it for all of us. <laughs> My guests have been co-host of The Point on NITV, John Paul Jenke, and Indigenous Affairs Editor at The Guardian Australia, Lorena Allen. To take us out, let's hear from King Stingray. Here they are with Get Me Out. And that's the show for this week. Join us again next week when we profile nurse health expert and human rights advocate, Dr. Graceland Smallwood.
2: How are we ever going to get any any more referendums passed in this country? Because it was absolutely amazing that 90% voted for us to become citizens and uh, be connected to some form of the constitution when we've got uh, the mainstream media speaking terribly about our people and we also have some of our own people dividing uh, the, uh, the the community as to do we vote for the Yularu, do we vote for the Voice, do we vote for anything for First Nations people, as we should all be mainstreamed and put us in to the one basket, which has never worked anywhere in the world, and First Nations people cannot be equal until our statistics are identical right throughout the whole system of health. Uh, justice, education, all of those issues. And once we're totally handicapped and once our statistics are on par with other Australians, that's when we can be moulded into that one basket. So we're we're in uh, terrible traumatic times, but um, that's why I became so active in through my nursing. And when I looked at the movie Sapphire, I said to somebody when we're sitting there, that was me and and some of the other Murray Island nurses said, yeah, that was me too. And uh, I, I guess with our people we have a wonderful sense of humour which has kept our survival through thick and thin and uh, we make little jokes about it and I said, oh, I reckon I could have been one of those gorgeous Briggs as those sapphires because I sing all those songs. And the sapphires are here in uh, three weeks' time in Townsville. So a lot of my Murray nurses that are still around, we're going to dress up like the sapphires sapphires, and go and sit in the front and and just enjoy to de-stress our trauma. So I moved on then, Larissa, from nursing. I graduated. My mum still lived in an old tin shack on the hill, when I was in my first year, She, uh, we were the days where you did your exams and it went from Townsville to Brisbane as a number. And when it came back, um, your tutor sister changed it to your name. And I got 100% for um, the topic of anatomy and physiology. And the kidneys was the first name, uh, first big question. And I studied the kidneys because many of our people were dying of renal failure way back then. And um I got a hundred percent, and um I have a lovely white friend to this very day, and she got a credit, and I got a high distinction and her parents asked the matron and the deputy and the deputy matron as well as the um medical superintendent that there was only there was only two Aboriginal nurses in our group, and they asked uh if it was uh, possible for our papers to have been mixed up that. Uh, almost impossible with their views of me getting a high distinction and my white friend getting a credit. And, um, you know, whilst they're not shooting us in the back or poisoning our water holes and doing horrific things through a genocidal process now, but institutional racism is still very uh, clear within our daily living. And it doesn't matter if you're a doctor, professor or a cleaner, or in the park uh, living homelessness, We once we identify as Aboriginal and Islander, we're all suffering uh, some form of institutional racism on a daily basis. And and that's what um, a lot of mainstream uh, services and, and media cannot come to terms with because they want to treat us all in the one basket and say we're all homogeneous. Well, as you and I know, as professors, doctors and lecturers, that That's impossible. And for us to get to that equality, we have to deal with the handicap. And if we don't have activists like myself and many, many others, I've had amazing uh, forebearers, freedom fighters that paved the way for people like myself to continue our fight for justice.
3: episode of Speaking Out was produced by Jay McAllister and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au and find us on social media via ABC Indigenous. I'm Larissa Barrett.